Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Troyce, and joining me today from lovely London is Mr. Andres Smith. Andres, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you, Frank. How are you? Doing very well. So where, where exactly now in the UK are you these days? Um, it's a little place called Hoxton Square, right between Old Street Roundabout and Shoreditch. So what people would refer to as Tech City here in London. Is that what it's really called? Yeah, it was a movement that started with uh, with the government oh, was in 2011-12, uh, and there was a forum created called Tech City uh, UK, and um, the original base office was here in uh, in Old Street area, um, and uh, it's morphed since then, but this is still referred to as some of the epicenter of fintech for the UK. How neat is that? I had no idea. And, you know, it, it's interesting for, for, for our listeners' benefit, you, you, you come to the show with a bit of good scar tissue as it, as it relates to fintech. And relative to your travels, um, I think you've been everywhere except the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Um, I spent some time in Canada, so North America, although uh, on the other side of the border. Um, I spent uh-huh. some time in Asia, based in Singapore, but heavily involved in, in Hong Kong. Uh, and then the UK has been my base for the last 13, 14 odd years, um, but also leaning into Europe. Um, if you know a little bit about the company I work with at the moment, we're by and large a UK European insurer. Um, so there's a lot of cross-border working uh, in the group. Now, now Andres, given, given your experience, I mean, have you always been a digital guy or is this a relatively new phenomenon for you? Yeah, no, digital native through and through. Um, I grew up uh, uh, with all my pocket money being uh, used in buying my first X86. Uh, So uh, I grew up with that. And then uh, in in secondary school, um, love made me do it. But um, to win the heart of a a very beautiful young lady, I created my first um, computer program. Uh, because she ended up spending her whole weekends at cross-country running events, uh, and their technology at that stage, which was by and large manual, meant that she spent eight hours at these events waiting for the results. Now, clearly, for a uh, 17-year-old in-love young man, that was not good enough. Um, So that got me into digital in the first place, created uh, a program, and then actually sold it to the cross-country 
running association. Um, and, Good for you. And, yeah, the rest is history, to be honest. So, so given given your your history in, in the industry, and, and sometimes I sound like the old crank out there saying that, that fintech is nothing more than a rehash of some of the things that we saw back in 2001. So forgetting my my skepticism and pessimism, I mean, what, what about the industry is new? Why, why, why are you still involved in this day to day? I think that's a great question. Um, the honest truth is, I think up to now, it was simply not possible for fintech to really work. Um, there were so many stars that needed to align. You needed uh, the infrastructure of technology to be uh, solved, you know, and cloud has gone leaps and bounds uh, in terms of that. You needed some of the security protocols and, and understanding and training across borders to be solved. And a lot of that has been done. And, and you see a lot of development in, in blockchain and how do you bring trust into these networks. But fundamentally, the biggest thing is you needed to bring the cost of actually uh, digitizing organizations down significantly. Uh, financial services are complex, right? and they are complex for a reason. They are here to protect the individuals who put their money and future uh, lives of their families in the hands of these corporations. You definitely do not want an industry that can willy-nilly go around and just do stuff. But with that complexity and regulations and rules brings complexity and complexity brings cost. And whenever cost is involved, you either have to have deep, deep pockets as a VC uh, and, a, and a longer investment horizon, or you just don't play in that space. So what I do think that is different from 2001 versus now is for the first time, I actually believe it is possible on a cost base, uh, a cost benefits analysis basis for fintech to be disrupted. Let, let's play with that a little bit. The the and let's drill down into your point on the on the VC side of this. I mean, wh why at the end of the day? And again, I'm going to pick on you. So so we could argue, you know, you're now an institutional man. You're a company man. Uh, you're innovating like a banshee. But but at the end of the day, do, is in, especially in finance, is this an industry where an external venture-backed entity can truly disrupt it? Or, or is it a function of working for a behemoth, uh, you know, insurance company, brokerage, et cetera? And, and is that the better place to be as it relates to fintech? It, it's hard to say. And, and I think you'll have winners and losers in all of those segments. You'll have startups that will win in certain niches or areas. You'll have incumbents to win in certain niches and areas. And you'll have some of the VCs knowing to play well in between. Um, so I think you'll see that at a micro level. But at a macro level, there are two elements to fintech, uh, which although they are not unique, they are very, very important, disproportionately important versus other industries. The first one is big balance sheets, right? Whether you're a bank or an insurer, the capital that you need to have behind you is multiples that of a, of a retailer or an e-commerce play uh, or even just a data play. Um, so, so that's that's one. And the second one is the know-how, the expertise that you need to be able to manage and, and navigate all these complexities of the regulations, the borders, uh, and the regulators. So what you are seeing is that in fintech uh, versus other industries, you'll see an older cohort. The typical uh, founder and co-founder uh, is more um, uh, seasoned. 
They have most likely spent some time in a large corporate, knowing, uh, get, you know, knowing how the operations work, knowing how the regulations work, building a network, which is really, really important. Uh, and then secondly, just to bring it back to your VC point is the investments in fintech, um, and, and we've seen it crystallize over the last two years, I would say, um, those VCs and funds and even PEs who tend to play in this space because it's so much more money required, they are also looking at how to pivot the business model to bring forward some of these benefits realization. A classic example would be the lemonades or the slices of the world. Um, even in, in, in China, you see the same with uh, Ping An and Zong An. They're also banking on their technology platform and making that available to other incumbents. It, it's an attempt and a recognition of we can't wait for this enormous 10, 20 year cycle to build and ensure a ground up. We have to monetize or recover some of our investment early. And the best way to do that is to pivot slightly and become a bit of a, a tech B2B2C player. Uh, and we're seeing that more and more. Forgive, forgive the crass analogy, but I mean, if, if, if we can agree for a second to your point that these institutions are critical to the <clears throat> The underpinning of society in terms of the function that they perform. So let, let me use the weak example of, of a car. So you, you need something, a mode of transport to get you from point A to point B. On the one hand, again, being a, let me wear the hat of a skeptic just to play devil's advocate with you. If on the one hand, if we look at the legacy systems today as the Model T Ford, and on the other hand, you know, if you were to build the car from the ground up today, you can build an F1 car, you know, and just make a absolutely enormous leap forward the the question i have for you is is how much of that is is innovation versus how much of that is just doing a cost benefit analysis to say you know what we, we need to stop the model t because we're going to get so much pro more productivity and profitability going to the to the f1 you know and that's the thing i have a trouble with is it really a cost benefit analysis or is it truly innovation that we're seeing it, it's a it's another good question and actually i uh, i read a blog written by Chris Skinner. He's uh, very well known in the industry talking about the fintech disruption. Um, and he actually has a beautiful way of framing uh, the thinking around that. He talks about the Western challenge, the Eastern challenge, and the Southern challenge. Um, it breaks down as he argues that in the West, so basically the US, North America, UK, and large parts of Europe, um, you have a legacy problem. Uh, therefore, you have these uh, big systems, whether it's banking or insurance, they've been around for five, six, seven decades, and they have certain embedded uh, systems, ways of working, uh, all the way down to the programmers that are still around who still can code against these systems that have been written in mainframe and COBOL and you know old languages. That brings a very different challenge, and your your CBA, your cost benefit analysis, only stacks up in that paradigm. In in, in contradiction to that, the East he positions as a growth uh, industry or growth area, where much of if you if you take China as an example, they don't have that pervasive challenge. They've basically leapfrogged straight forward into mass adoption of relatively more modern technology. It's only 10, 20 years old. Um, and that's why you see that in China, um, the, the 
adoption of these newer technologies have been so fast in contrast to the West. It is because the the legacy or the history paradigm for those two are, are very, very different. Uh, and then lastly, in this, what he class, Chris classifies as um, the southern paradigm is that south of the equator, you have a very mixed bag and you don't have the same level of central coordination, command and control, if you like, across these systems. You still have an array of these systems and innovation. Uh, And he classifies that as an innovation paradigm. So if you you look at Africa or Southern America, um, you see lots and lots and lots, which feel sometimes a little bit scattered uh, innovation. They are looking at the paradigm very differently. Um, So if, if you think about insurance in Africa and the way they're doing that via text messaging and so forth, it is a completely different paradigm and, and, and context in which they, they're operating. It's almost a, a minimalist uh, mindset is how can I make do uh, with as little technology, infrastructure and money as possible? Very different than the Eastern and Western uh, uh, paradigms. Does that make sense? It, it does. And actually, you know, to your point, when we on, on the, the Southern model, it, it also kind of augurs, you know, almost the the almost anything you do can provide some massive form of utility given how little or what little was there exactly. before. Interesting. Interesting. How, how does that bode though? For if we, if, if, let's just put a face to this. So if we look at the Western model as the United States and the Eastern model as, as China, I think underpinning both of those is, is the regulatory framework underneath those. So the, if the U S has all this legacy infrastructure, China does not, Again, being an American, I, I would say one of the big, big challenges that the, that the U.S. has today is that, that its regulatory framework is, is still quite cumbersome. So even then, they might talk a good game with fintech, but do, do you really see them being able to catch up to China, given that it seems like they have every variable working for them? It's a tough one for me to personally comment purely because I've not worked under the U.S. regulation. So I'm not as close to it as I am, for instance, in some of the other jurisdictions. Um, but let me let me use it as a proxy to say let's let's compare in my analogy Western Western versus Eastern, uh, Western being you know the markets North America UK Europe, very well versed have uh, very clearly defined regulations and so forward versus in the East uh, which is a as a highly growth um, uh, sector. The thing that the East has to its advantage is it can move much quicker. It can innovate much, much faster. Um, How close the regulator stays to that and how fast they can adopt some of the reg tech or the regulatory technology and innovation behind that, that is what we... What, what was going to be interesting to see over this year and next, you could see already uh, the regulators stepping much closer over the last year or so, um, specifically if you look at the gaming industry, if you look at the uh, banking industry, and, and, and even so in insurance. But what, what that initial growth phase, the last 20 years, have allowed uh, China to do is to fundamentally break into customer acquisition, right? They've, been managed, they've managed to grab the eyes, attention, and buy-in of a billion-plus people. Now, under normal circumstances, um, financial services is not top of mind for humans, right? We don't wake up saying, oh, only today I can change my bank or if I can change my insurer. Now, because of that, Mm -hmm. it is very expensive 
to buy that um, share of mind and share of time for for large corporations. Uh, and, And you can physically see this. Insurance, as an example, is the single most expensive category on Google AdWords. It is because you've just got to buy so much mm. of it to actually penetrate through the noise in, in uh, uh, people's lives in, on a normal basis. Now, <clears throat> what, because China didn't have that backlog, that legacy, that uh, rafts of regulation to comply with on top of this, they managed to invest a lot of time and effort in, in that acquisition part, in solving the proposition and, in, and solving the engagement layer uh, of the challenge. Um, so, so that that clearly stood in in, in their advantage. The I, I frequently get asked the question: Do I think that they would China uh, would be able to export that uh, know-how, that new customer engagement layers, that new apps into into the West? And, and the truth is, I think yes and no. Yes, there's phenomenal technology. Uh, which gives them a distinct advantage. That technology is so much more sophisticated in targeting and personalizing for customers, and it's so much cheaper to operate. However, they've not solved the problem which the West has today, which is a desensitized customer, right? The challenge that, in, in your question, the US or the Canadian or the European has is they've already got a bank. They already have something that is relatively decent and okay. I have an app. It's not the best in the world, but it's sort of okay. Now, to break into my daily routine and try and convince me to change my behavior, it your proposition either needs to be so spectacular or you're going to have to communicate with me for a very, very long and expensive time uh, to convince me to move. Does that make sense? It does. And actually, you know what I'd like to do selfishly? Would you have uh, time for one more segment and we can pick up on, on this Chinese yeah, thing, if possible? Do. Perfect. All right. For folks listening in, stay tuned. We will be right back with Andre Smith right after this commercial break. 